Uh, I wanted to ask you to think about maybe a rocky start that you had in something. Maybe it was a rocky start in your marriage. Maybe year one was a little rough. Uh, Maybe it was a rocky start at a new job or in your career. Maybe a rocky start to school. You know, you you went to college and you thought, oh man, uh, high school education wasn't all that I thought it was. I'm not ready for this. Uh, Maybe you you had a rocky start uh, moving to Alaska and you think, Lord, where did you drag me? Or a rocky start in trying to maintain your Alaskan home because it feels like this state's trying to kill your house, right? Trying to keep it going is still an ongoing struggle, I think, for all of us. I was thinking about this. Uh, I had a rocky start in my first job at a college. Uh, I graduated from Biola, uh, had a communications degree, was heading to a church in eastern Washington, Yakima, Washington, to be the junior high uh, youth director there. And so I moved up. I didn't have a place to stay, didn't have a car. And so uh, the youth pastor that I was working under let me stay with him. And he also let me borrow his, his car so that I could get there. And um, on my first day to work, I was driving, uh, driving there. And I just was sort of aware that everybody in Yakima, Washington, seems to be driving slower than me. Uh, you know, fresh up from Los Angeles, Orange County, you know, it felt a little different just a little bit. And so I was aware of that and uh, turned the corner, was kind of on the home stretch to the church, and a police officer pulled me over. Uh, okay, this is interesting. And, and I'm kind of reflecting on this situation, thinking, this is not good. Um, so he kindly came over and said, can I get your license and registration? So I pull the registration out of the car that's not mine. And I realize I'm going to hand him this registration. My name's not on the car. Uh, so he says, whose car is this? Oh, it's my boss's. I'm new to the area, blah, blah, blah. Okay, uh, would you tell your boss that his vehicle registration is expired? <laughs> I'll tell him. Thanks, thanks, John Schubert. Appreciate that. Set me up there. And then he says, can I see your driver's license? So I hand him my California driver's license. <laughs> so we just kind of keep going down here, right? <laughs> and then I, I also become aware of... Uh, my, my boss, John, had just been out duck hunting. So he had a bunch of shotgun shells rattling around in the back seat. And I'm from California. We don't have shotgun shells anywhere. So I just, I'm just thinking, registration's expired. I, my license is from California. I got shotgun shells in the back seat. I'm going to jail. Like, I'm going to call John. Hey, sorry, your car's been impounded. They're going to haul me off to jail. And to make matters, you think that would be enough. But to make matters worse, he then informs me, are you aware that you just blew through uh, a school zone at 30 miles an hour? And I said, I had no idea. I, I, the speed limit said 30. And he said, I understand that, but you were in a school zone. It was marked. And I was like, marked with what? He says, these little orange flags. They have little orange flags sticking out of signposts. And I was like, that's not, I, I didn't see that. I had no, in California, if it's a school zone, blink, 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 Right. So anyways, he looked at me, he just kind of shook his head, and he's like, where are you headed? And I said, well, actually, I work at the church around the corner. It's my first day. And then he just shook his head, and he says, get out of here. <laughs> I think he just looked at the mountain of, of uh, paperwork and was like, I don't want to do it. This, this kid's uh, not going to make it anyways. Don't worry about him. So. Rocky start. That was a rocky start. Uh, 
in Paul, Paul's second missionary journey here, it gets off to a rocky start. We see that here. Um, and it's a little surprising. You might expect, hey, the last one went so well. Uh, it was so fruitful. Why, why, you know, why wouldn't we expect it to be a great one this time? But instead, a rocky start. And the first thing we see here, they run into this ministry team breakup, right? Uh, in chapter 15, verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. So that's a, that's a rocky start. Let's get the team together, ready to go. Boom, a rift right, right away out of the gate here. They break up. And yet God was faithful to provide new team members, right? Paul is able to take the reliable Silas and also the Chichaco Timothy that we talked about last week. And Barnabas is able to extend his grace to actually a relative of his and, and take John Mark with him. And so two ministry teams go out. And so even though there's a rocky start, we see the providence of God. It was style and methodology and temperament which sort of drove them apart. But instead what we got is not just a fracture but two effective teams. And so we're reminded in that that God is building his church. This will be the refrain this morning. When you leave here and somebody asks you, what did you guys learn at church today? You're going to say this line, God is building his church. But I want to focus on a, a different word as we kind of work our way through this. In this first one, we see it is God who is doing this. It is his agency, his power, his wisdom. He doesn't always do it in the way that we would. But God is doing it, and he is trustworthy. So, okay, we got this thing uh, fixed, and we think we're off and running now. Paul and Silas, uh, they're going to go their route, and they've got a big plan. And instead, right out of the gate, not only they have this partnership breakup, now they have this major roadblock, verse 6. Paul and his, minist- and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Messiah and went down to Troas. Well, how does that hit you? That's odd, right? I mean, I mean I'll be honest. I read that and I go, that just doesn't sound right. I have so many questions about this. The first thing that comes to my mind is, why would the Holy Spirit prevent the gospel from being preached anywhere? The answer to that is, I don't know. So you're going to clearly get your money's worth this morning, okay? I, I don't know. And then the second question I have about it is this. I, I wonder what it looked like for this, this prevention here. What happened? You know, did somebody get a stomach bug or... Did they all have a dream that night or some strong impression? Was there a vision? Was, was there some agency or official that came and said, absolutely not? Uh, and we're not, we're not told. I, again, I don't know. But they're, they're certain, Dr. Luke presents this certainly as the Holy Spirit who prevented them. Whatever resistance they encountered, it was clearly under divine influence for the ministry team. So first of all, we see this ministry team break up. Then we see the ministry team is blocked. And it's interesting to me that, again, clearly it's the Holy Spirit who does this. 
But you notice the second time the Spirit is mentioned here, the verbiage changes. The first time it's the Holy Spirit, but the second time it says the Spirit of Christ. That's a unique sort of construction of words that we find in the New Testament. Only a couple times do we see it that way. And that piques my curiosity. What are we to understand here? Is it Christ who's preventing them? Or is it the Holy Spirit who's preventing them? What is this Spirit of Christ formulation? Now, some of you are going to love this next book. Some of you gonna, uh, next bit. Some of you are going to glaze over. Uh, it'll be interesting to see who's who, but I'm watching you. I would encourage you to dig in here a little bit because I think this is really cool. Well, let me start with this. There is, we, could, we could say that there is a hierarchy of function within the triune Godhead. A hierarchy of function. Not in what we would say an ontological hierarchy. One is not more valuable or worth more than the other. They are equal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all God and are equal. But there is a hierarchy of function such that Jesus in one instance can say, the Father is greater than I. Okay? Um, And what we find here is that when Jesus submits to the Father and becomes incarnate and comes to earth and takes on human flesh, he is... He is acting in a way that is subordinate to the Father and also to the Spirit, uh, such that the Spirit is one who would lead him into the desert to be tempted. The Spirit would minister to him. The Spirit would empower him. But when the incarnate Son, Jesus, when he dies and is buried and raises again and ascends to heaven and is glorified and sits at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit is then subordinate to him. So that Jesus then sends the Spirit, as he promised he would do in John 16, where he says, I tell you, it's good that I'm going away, and unless I go, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So, The spirit who once sent and led and empowered Christ in his earthly ministry is now sent by Christ to lead and empower us for the mission of God. And that's where we get this phrase, the spirit of Christ. He is sent by Christ to perform his ministry. So what's the lesson here? Uh, It's going to be familiar. God is building his church. And here I want to key in on that second word, the is thing. It is happening, even when it doesn't look like it. And sometimes this is what we really have to proclaim to ourselves and say this and believe this by faith. When we have some kind of blockage or some kind of uh, setback and we think, where is the Lord in this? We have to proclaim to our hearts, God is building his church, even when it doesn't look like it. When our ministry falters, or when the discipleship of someone we love and care for has a major setback, or when some door of opportunity that we were really excited about and it closes, or persecution is coming, or adversity seems everywhere, or our culture seems to have gone to pot and becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, and we think, really? You're building your church, Lord? We have to proclaim as a matter of faith, yes, God is building his church. He is never on vacation He is always at work. Our confidence in that is not in mankind's strength. It's not in the strength of our teams or of our plans, but in confidence of the strength and the plan of God. Verse 9. 
During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you notice the change of language there? It's now inclusive. Luke is one of the traveling companions. He's on this, he's part of the team. He's with them in that. And that's kind of how we get some of our information. But the second thing we see here is this. The ministry team is now beckoned. And this has got to be incredibly encouraging after the rocky start, right? Ministry team breakup, initially blocked, didn't get to go where they wanted to go. And now we have this clear call to ministry. This Macedonian man or a man from Europe says, come and help us in this vision. So the question I want to ask about this sort of for our contemporary context is, um, how should we expect God to speak to us? How do we expect to hear from him? Should we expect dreams or visions like this? Or what we call a theophany, which is sort of a physical manifestation of God, like God in the burning bush speaking to Moses. How, do we, how should we expect to hear from God? So I want to give two general cautions about the book of Acts. First of all, it's dangerous to say that whatever happens in the book of Acts is normative. It's dangerous to say that it's normative. On the other hand, I think it's also dangerous to say that what happens in the book of Acts never happens. And I think we should avoid those two extremes here. So let's start off with basically an appreciation for how things are different in the first century church from today. Okay, so just some key things, certainly not everything. But uh, first of all, I would say the apostles of Jesus, capital A apostles, that is those who were called and commissioned by Christ himself, those who had witnessed his ministry and his resurrection. Okay, so the 12 plus one. The apostles of Jesus have a different status, a different calling, and a different authority conferred upon them than you or I have. Okay, so we need to recognize that distinction. Secondly, they're ministering at a time where the Holy Spirit has just been poured out, right? Instead of the Spirit of God being sort of localized in a particular place or on a particular person, now all believers in Christ are baptized in the Holy Spirit and have the Holy Spirit. And so that's a new thing, and the gospel is just going into new territories. These two big new movements uh, for the people of God required a kind of legitimization, a kind of a sign to authenticate that this was happening. That's distinct to that, to that time, okay? Thirdly, the apostles were also ministering in a time where the revelation of God is not yet complete. Okay? Therefore, God gave the apostles direct revelation in the form of dreams and visions and inspiration, which would become our New Testament scripture. But we shouldn't expect those same activities to be normative in our life as though we were them. Again, we want to be careful also to say that they're, it's not that they're never uh, we have to remember that the book of Acts, the long title, the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, it really chronicles a unique time in church history, it, church's birth and its initial rise. 
we're not apostles. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The gospel has been legitimized. The New Testament revelation has been completed such that we are not dependent upon dreams and visions and supernatural manifestations to substantiate God's work. Okay, so that's where things are distinct. All that being said, we don't want to deny that God, by his Spirit, speaks to us. Okay? We're thankful for the Scriptures, and we must be biblical. And to be biblical, we also have to be spiritual, which means that the Spirit of God indwells us and acts upon us, and we are to be under his influence. So in order to be biblical, you have to be spiritual. And the Apostle Paul says as much to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 5. He says, don't quench the Spirit, don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Now let me bring this out of the realm of theory into the everyday. So you can imagine as a pastor, I get this conversation a lot. And I'll tell you, this is one of the quickest ways to make me cringe. It starts with this, Pastor, God told me. And I just, I want to sit down and hold my head and it just, oh, it frustrates me. I'll get a little cranky about this. Sorry, not sorry, I guess. It bothers me so much. And here's why. I think it's an everyday or modern day way of using the Lord's name in vain. I think using the Lord's name in vain is not just OMG, but it's declaring that something is to happen and God told me and so we're invoking his name and his authority on, on something that's sort of in my own mind and will here. What if you're wrong? You've just made God into a liar. So I wish people would just say, it seems to me. It seems like God is impressing this upon me. It seems like this is at work. I am consistently running into this in my quiet times and through the encouragement of the believers around me. It seems to me God is doing such and such. Just, just take it down a bit. I can't tell you how many crazy things have followed that beginning of that sentence. God told me. I'll give you one instance. This is sort of out of the blue here. Two women showed up about 10 years ago and asked to see the pastor. It came downstairs and they said, uh, we have to tell you something. God told us that you're to pay attention to a farmer selling a field. Okay. Nice to meet you. I, they flew up from the lower 48 to tell me that. I, had, I have no idea. I, can't, I have so many stories of that nature. And it's just bizarre. Anyways, let me just leave that where it is. <laughs> what is the lesson to learn here? God is building his church. And he is building it. It is a process. It's something that takes place over time. God is a general contractor. He knows the sequence of this building that he is putting together. And it's a slow process. It's not immediate. It's not right now like we might like it to be. 2,000 years he's been building his church. You thought your home project was taking a while. God is building his church. Fourth thing here. Ministry team breakthrough. Oh, good. Some good news. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed through Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis, and from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside to the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. 
We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Um, first of all, I think it's so interesting that the vision that Paul has is a Macedonian man, right? A man of Europe saying, come and help us. And when they go and they get there, they run into a group of women who actually turn out to be those who help them. So interesting how God used the vision as a catalyst, but it wasn't necessarily a picture of the exact thing to come. Philippi is an interesting place. It's a Roman colony in Europe, and one of the things we understand about it, this is a Gentile city, has no synagogue, which is why the women are out to the river, uh, essentially, to worship God. Uh, Lydia is a God-fearer. She's not a Jewish proselyte. Uh, that she doesn't participate in all of the, the Jewish practices, but she is one who loves and worships Yahweh, and she is a fascinating uh, woman and a fascinating uh, convert here. Um, she has a couple of kids, but no husband is mentioned, which leads us to believe that she's either a widow or that she's divorced. Uh, she's from the city of Thyatira, which is in the region of Lydia, and probably that's where she gets her name. It's most likely that she was once a slave that worked for a, a Roman governor or, or someone, a Roman authority, and she was referenced as the Lydian woman and therefore gets her name Lydia. Um, in any case, whatever her background, at this point in time, she's a free woman. She has no husband. She's got a few kids. She's a successful businesswoman dealing in purple dyes, She's maintaining two residences. Her home in Philippi is large enough to accommodate the ministry team and to be the first meeting place of the church in Philippi. And Lydia would have sort of become one of the church's early founders, and that church would go on to be one of the most generous, generous financial supporters of the Apostle Paul. So what looked like a huge detour, not being able to go to Asia, initially turns out to be an incredible blessing that the church in Philippi is planted in support of the Apostle Paul. She's also clearly a really good saleswoman because notice how she leverages the team. If you think I'm a Christian, come and stay with me, right? She reminded me, this reminded me of this, this kind of a random story, but I'll tell it anyways. Uh, when Amy and I were first dating, she was going to school in San Diego. I was at Biola. I took the train down and picked her up one day. We went to Tijuana. I thought it'd be fun to take her there. I had been before and she hadn't. And so we went there, and we were doing a little shopping, and I, of course, was bartering, as I would, and Amy's cringing like crazy, because that seemed awkward, but I'm having fun bartering in these stores, and so we go to this, this one sort of intersection with four stores, one on each corner. I go into the first one. I think we were looking at a blanket or something like that. I'm bartering down the price, and Amy's kind of looking away, awkward, and, and the woman, she's really firm on the price, and she kind of says this. She says, I have to feed my family. And I'm like, all right, so I give her the price, buy the thing. And then we go across the street to another store. And we're looking around, and wouldn't you know it, the same woman crosses the street, and she comes in there. And I said, oh, do you work here too? And she says, yeah, I have to feed my family. <laughs> I was like, all right. 
So we, we, you know, we do a little more bartering and shopping, and then we go to the third one. Guess what? <laughs> she crosses the street again. And I'm like, you work in all three of these? And she says, I own all four. I have to feed my family. <laughs> That's, I, she came to mind when I was thinking of Lydia. I was like, this businesswoman is savvy. She knows me. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, you better come stay with me. Okay. Okay. What's the lesson here? Oh, God is building his church. It doesn't look the way we might make it. It's not going to reflect just purely us. It's not a man's church. It's not a woman's church. It's not an old fogey's church. It's not a hipster church. It's not Jewish. It's not Gentile. It's not Roman or American or European or Dominican. The church is God's church. It belongs to him. And it is beautifully and wonderfully diverse. It is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multinational. It is of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And interesting, in all three of the stories that we see here, we see how different they are. First of all, this independent entrepreneurial woman, followed here in a second by a young demonized woman who was a slave and being used, and then followed by another male civil servant here. And I think Paul's point to, in all of this is just to show that God is building a church that is made up of multi-ethnic, multi-generational folks. All right, the fifth movement here. The ministry team is badgered. This one's kind of funny. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Now, first of all, when we read this, I guess I have to appreciate the fact that the Apostle Paul got annoyed. I kind of feel, that's nice to know. If an apostle can get annoyed, surely an average dude like me can get annoyed too. So I kind of just take a little comfort in that. But you kind of wonder, well, what is it that he got annoyed at? Because it doesn't sound like what she says here is so terrible. That seems like a pretty good statement, right? These, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Well, there's a couple problems here. The first is clearly the source from which she has this knowledge, which is she's a demonized woman. And no demon is in favor of the gospel being proclaimed, so we should be suspect here. But secondly, the message that she's portraying is pretty ambiguous, actually. Maybe not at first glance to us. But this phrase, most high God, when we as Christians hear that, we go, oh, we know who that is. That's Yahweh. But she doesn't specify that this is the God of Abraham and Isaac or Jacob, that this is the God of the Bible, that this is Yahweh, or she doesn't mention Jesus. So in a pluralistic community like Philippi, that's just primarily Roman, and so you've got a pagan worshiping lots of gods, when she says most high God, most likely on the ears of that congregation, they're hearing Zeus. That would be the impression that they would have. It's a general statement in the same way in our day and age, you might hear somebody say, a higher power. In other words, I think what's probably happening here, well, there's a a second ambiguity too. I'll point this out real quick. When she talks about salvation, 
In our Bibles, it says, the way to be saved. But actually, in the original Greek, the word the is not there. The definite article tau is not there. So in the original Greek, it just says, a way to be saved. In other words, I think the message that the people around would have heard from this demonic woman is that these men are servants of a higher power telling you a way to be saved. Which is not something that bolsters the gospel, but probably gets in their way and annoys everybody before they're able to articulate it. So Paul has had enough, and he casts the demon out, which costs them dearly. But we're reminded here again, God is building his church. Not just disseminating information, but he's building together a people of God who worship God. When we turn in saving faith to Christ, we are not just saved from our sins. We are saved into the family of God to belong together as the church of Christ. The church of Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. Last movement here, we find the ministry team bullied. Verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into, the prison, into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And at that time of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then, immediately and all his, then, immediate, then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God and he and his, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent for their officers and jailers uh, with the orders, release these men, the jailer told Paul. The magistrates have ordered that you, and, that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. And now the plot thickens. This gets interesting. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly, without trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. 
After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with their brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. All right, long passage. Clearly what's happened here is there has been incredible mis- or injustice. False accusations have been levied, no trial. They were abused publicly without cause, and it's all especially egregious because they're Roman citizens. What's fascinating to me here is that in this instance, Paul is willing to assert his rights, his civic rights, his legal rights. There are some instances where we as Christians might set aside our rights in deference and and in hope that it might promote the gospel, but Paul here gives us a precedent of saying there are times to grasp our rights, assert them, and use them. And I think actually in doing so in this particular place, he probably prevents, they probably prevent future missionaries and future folks from suffering in the same way. In other words, it's reasonable and we have precedent as Christians to utilize the rights that we have civically. We don't always have to do it. Again, we may set them aside, but we're not obligated to suffer and not utilize our rights every time. So let me give you a couple examples. Let's say you're a teacher and you work for the North Star Borough. I'm not trying to pick on the district or anything like that. But let's say things are not going well for you at work. You're being mistreated. You're not being handled well. You're well within your rights to go to the union and ask for their advocacy on your behalf. Let's say you're a parent and you don't like the curriculum that you're seeing that your, your student has in the public school. You're well within your rights to go to the school board and say, I got a problem with this. Christians are not always to duck their head and deny their rights and just try to be peaceable. We're going to be judicious in that. We may set aside our rights for the sake of the gospel, and we may claim them also for the sake of the gospel. And in all of this, we are reminded again that God is building his church. God is doing it, he is the agent at work. It is happening whether it looks like it or not. It is a building process. It's taking place over time. It's not going to happen at the speed or sequence we might like. It's his church. It's going to reflect his likeness, not ours. And it's going to be wonderfully diverse. And again, it's a church, not just a data set, not just a bunch of information, but a community of faith that God is building together. This is what we need to remind ourselves. God is building his church And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ encouraged us by saying, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these um, incidents that we can see where your hand is sovereignly at work, wisely and powerfully acting. Um, All of these circumstances that the apostles uh, went through, Lord, we can imagine how they might feel our ministry team blowing up or feeling blocked from doing what we want to do, having setbacks or trying to discern whether or not we're hearing from you or not, being badgered, being bullied, all of these kinds of things. But we're reminded, Lord, you are building your church and we're on the winning side of this battle. May we be faithful in the meantime to do what you've called us to do, trusting your power and your agency to bring it all to fruition for our good and for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.